Beloved, in the context of leadership, John D. Rockefeller, the richest American who ever lived, said this, quote, I would pay more for the ability to deal with people than any other ability under the sun. And he had his finger on the pulse of something that is true. Leadership, relationships are more important to good leadership than temperament, technique, and intelligence. Any organization's success, be it a nation, a sports team, business, a family, an army, a church, its success rests on its leadership. The success and progress rests with those in charge. And beloved, with that in mind, please open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. When I graduated from seminary, I put together a philosophy of ministry statement. Uh, it was to be a companion to my doctrinal statement. So the doctrinal statement, as our doctrinal statement, what we teach, captures what, we, uh, what one believes, or at our church, what we teach. And I explained a couple Sundays ago why we call it as such. A philosophy of ministry is a little less tangible. It's taking the doctrines that might be contained in a doctrinal statement and applying it to what biblical ministry looks like. And I say that because in a certain sense, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 could well be thought of as the Apostle Paul's philosophy of ministry. In chapter 1, we had the great blessing to have a two-part series on that great chapter, a model church part 1 and a model church part 2. And what we have this morning is part 1 of a model shepherd. In verses 1 through 12 of chapter 2, what we see is a picture of a model shepherd of the church of God. And what Paul does here in these verses, he discloses his mind, he expresses his emotions, and he bears his soul. Kind of along the same line of Jesus, Lord Jesus, who said in John chapter 11, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. His immediate reference was, of course, himself as the great shepherd, but any good shepherd. A good shepherd in the real world of shepherding real four-legged sheep will lay his life down for his sheep. Even more so, the good shepherd of the flock of God will lay down his life on a daily basis for his sheep. The same way that a husband dies daily in his love for his bride. Beloved, listen as I read. I'm going to read the first 12 verses. Our passage this morning are the first six verses, the part one. But I'm going to read these 12 verses to set the entire stage. This is the word of God, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 1. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we have the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, not or nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. 
And having thus a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Beloved, this is the word of God that has been read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, what we have here this morning in the first six verses are three essential qualities of a model shepherd. Audacity, authenticity, and authority. Audacity empowered by suffering. Authenticity endorsed by God. And authority enveloped by humility. We have the blessing, as Scott announced, to extend the right hand of fellowship today uh, after this service and after the second service. And as I was reading through some of the membership forms, I was struck by one of the questions where the question is given to the person, the man or woman, that would become a formal member of Sandan Bible Church. Please describe in your own words your understanding of submission to the loving rule of the elders over you. Taken from Hebrews 13, verse 17. Beloved, part of God's intent for you and for me in this passage here this morning is that you would know, that we would know what effective shepherding looks like. That you would know what kind of church and what kind of elders to seek. You might say, well, I have wonderful shepherds here at Santan Bible Church. Why do I need to know what to seek or what to look for? You don't know if you may move. A bus may take all of us out simultaneously. But beloved, this is rich for us. We need to understand this. And God describes here men who provide biblical guidance, spiritual provision, doctrinal protection for the flock of God among them. It describes a man who lives what he wants his people to become. This is what faithful ministry looks like from the leadership and what faithful ministry looks like at all levels. Ministry in the family with parents. Ministry with husband and wife. This is the word of God. It is applicable. So, beloved, the first essential quality of a model shepherd is audacity empowered by suffering. And understand, there is a world of difference between brashness, which is spawned by irritation or arrogance, and boldness that is birthed by love. And what we have here in verse 1 and forward is a boldness that is strengthened by the Spirit through the battlefield of tribulation. Even as young Master Cole Michaels yesterday morning in his outstanding testimony at the men's big breakfast talked about a bold suffering. This is what we have here. Now, a quick word here so we understand what we're dealing with in all 12 of these verses. This is an apologia. This is a defense. This is a necessary defense from the Apostle Paul. 
You see, what had happened is after Paul, Silas, and Timothy had left Thessalonica, after the enemies of the gospel had went up and stirred trouble, after they stirred trouble for them in Thessalonica, they went up and stirred trouble up in Berea, then they came back and continued to sow discord. There were torrential streams of criticism running across the field of Paul's labor. And the enemies of the gospel didn't like the message, so therefore they opposed the messengers. They attacked his integrity. They attacked his sincerity. Uh, John Stott had these choice words. He said, quote, Paul's critics took full advantage of his sudden disappearance. In order to undermine his authority and his gospel, they determined to discredit him, so they launched a malicious smear campaign. And that is what Paul is addressing in this defense that he gives here in the first 12 verses. Now, understand this. Paul, we know, especially from 2 Corinthians, Paul detested defending himself. But he would do it when necessary. And he would not do it for self, not for pride, not for personal gain. But he would do it for the sake of the gospel. He would do it for the sake of Christ. And the situation was these enemies of the gospel were saying that Paul, Silas, and Timothy were charlatans, just like the other charlatans that were running around and percolating and circulating at the time. Uh, To give you an idea of the background, Leon Morris said this about that environment at that time. This is what Dr. Morris said, quote, There's probably never been such a variety of religious cults and philosophic system as in Paul's day. East and West had united and intermingled to produce an amalgam of real piety, high moral principles, crude superstition, and gross license. Oriental mysteries, Greek philosophy, and local godlings competed for favor under the tolerant aegis of Roman indifference. Holy men of all creeds and countries, popular philosophers, magicians, astrologers, crackpots, and cranks, the sincere and the spurious, the righteous and the rogue, swindlers and saints, jostled and clamored for the attention of the credulous and the skeptical, end quote. So, beloved, the situation was the truth of the gospel in this mature church, young but mature church. The truth of the gospel was at stake, and the Thessalonian church herself was at stake. So, in verse 1, Paul calls his first witness in this defense, you yourselves. You yourselves, Thessalonians, an emphatic, for you yourselves know brethren. And this begins a pattern of four times in verses 1 through 12. Paul will cite the fact that they know these things to be true. They know what kind of message was preached. They know what kind of, what manner of men were the preachers. And they know what their methodologies were. And from that, they would even know their motives. Plus, this is also, if we bring in what he had already said back in chapter 1, verse 5, five times Paul is pointing to the fact that you yourselves are witnesses to our character. And God is my witness. We'll see also twice in these 12 verses. The ministry, Paul's ministry, Paul, Silas, and Timothy's ministry in Thessalonica had been public. It was exercised in the open before God and man. So the verse continues, look at it, verse 1. You yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. It was not hollow. It was not empty. It was not fruitless. It was not useless. What he's saying here is, you know what we were, and you know what you became. 
That was even what he had already told them he thanks God for, for what they became. So they know that. And what he is saying is what we were and what you became is evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit, is evidence of the power of the Holy Spirit. We saw back in chapter 1. And what he says here, when he says it was not in vain, the grammar says this is a permanent abiding change. It was complete there, and it is continuing on through even now Thessalonians. It's the same kind of dynamic that Paul talks about when he writes his second letter to the church in Thessalonica. In 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 10, he says, Our testimony to you was believed. You see, they knew, they remembered, they were witnesses to the fact that Paul, Silas, and Timothy had opened up the gospel to them and had opened up their very hearts and lives to them. The Thessalonians heard the gospel, and the Thessalonians saw gospel men. But he continues, look at verse 2. He says, for, you know, and then now, but, and by the way, this for, but, for, Verse 1, now an emphatic contrast, but in verse 2. And this is a built-in outline. So we see three times, we see for this, but that in verses 1 and 2, verses 3 and 4, and then in verses 5 through 7. He says, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, suffered and mistreated, The suffering points more to the physical abuse and pain. The mistreatment points more to the emotional insult. Suffering is the physical injury. Mistreatment is the emotional insult. And this mistreatment, by the way, by way of illustration and example, this is the same kind of emotional insult and indignity that was heaped upon Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus himself predicted this as part of the fact that the Son of Man must first die and suffer many things, including this kind of mistreatment. Luke 18, verse 32, Jesus said, The Son of Man will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. So Paul, Silas, and Timothy were physically abused and they were publicly humiliated. Uh, We read of this back in Philippi. We read of this back in Acts chapter 16, especially verses 19 through 24. They were falsely accused. They were denied due process, and they were illegally punished. They were beaten and thrown into jail without trial as Roman citizens. So that is part of what he is, that's the backdrop of what he's saying. He is saying, you remember, that is what we experienced in Philippi before we came to Thessalonica. D. Edmund Hebert, the excellent commentator, said this on the physical side. When the missionaries arrived in Thessalonica, their lacerated backs were still far from being fully healed. But the point here that Paul is bringing out is does their experience, does their physical injury and their emotional insult, does it deter them? No. (laughs) No. At the end of verse 2, as you know. Again, second time, second calling of the Thessalonians as witness. As you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much persecution. This is audacity empowered by suffering. We had it there in Philippi. We had it here in Thessalonica. And this last word opposition, fascinating, agon is the Greek word from which we get our English word agony. Um, It's one of the most diversely translated 
uh, words that I can think of, at least in my estimation and my remembrance in the New Testament. In Philippians 1.30, it's translated as conflict. Colossians 2.1, it's a struggle. In Hebrews 12.1, it's an athletic race. It's an athletic race. It's also used for armed combat. Uh, Jesus records John 18, verse 36. Well, John records, Jesus said, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting. They would be agonizing so that I might not be delivered up to the Jews. This is the same dynamic where Paul takes that kind of armed combat in war and gives a spiritual application at the very end of his well-lived life. In 2 Timothy 4, 7, I've fought the good fight. I've agonized the good agony. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. Beloved, the point is this. Preaching the gospel is not a pleasant evening stroll. Now, to be sure, there's nothing more pleasant to me than preaching the gospel to my beloved Santan Bible Church. But to a lost and dying world, to a hostile world, it's not a pleasant evening stroll. Daryl Harrison, the great modern, one of the great modern thinkers, said, It's amazing to me how so many people view living in fear as virtuous. Paul, although he had every right from a human standpoint to live in fear, did not live in fear. He lived in boldness. He lived in godly audacity. And in the Christian life, there is no option. You are, if you are following Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are in the battle. The trumpet has sounded from the moment of your salvation to the moment of your death. We are waging this war. And then we continue with the rest of verse 2. Paul says, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God. This is the gospel of which God is both the source and the subject. And we have this boldness. That's where I'm getting my sermon title. uh, Well, not the sermon title, but this point title of audacity. This word really came from the freedom of speech that a Greek citizen enjoyed. And it came to mean courage, confidence, boldness, fearlessness. It describes a fearless attitude that's open and clear and speaking with boldness and courage, even in the face of danger publicly. For example, Acts 28, verse 31, we read Luke speaking of Paul, that he was preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, with all boldness, with all courage, unhindered. And I like what the Reformed Baptist pastor and preacher Al Martin said. He said, people know when you can be bought by their smiles and beaten by their frowns. You're never free to be an instrument of blessing to your people unless you're free from the effects of their smiles and their frowns. And he finishes, such a man is a free man in Christ. Paul wrote to the church in Philippi where his tribulation on this path began, he said, to you, to the Philippians who gave him joy, to you, it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Beloved, this, we are joint heirs with Christ. We are joint heirs with the joys. We are joint heirs with the suffering. And understand this, beloved, pain, suffering, brokenness, mistakes, and setbacks, can teach you patience, perseverance, compassion, and hope in Christ, in Christ. We see that evidence in these model shepherds of Paul, Silas, and Timothy. So 
That is audacity empowered by suffering. The second essential quality of a model shepherd is authenticity endorsed by God. What Paul says in verses 3 and 4 is his message is true. His motives are pure and his methods are honest. Look at verse 3. We come to that second beginning the four and then the but we'll get to in verse 4. Verse 3, for our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. Error, planes, from which we get the English word planet, describes a wandering, a straying about, a straying from truth. In 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 11, it's translated a deluding influence. The error of chapter 2 verse 3 is the delusion of 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 11. Uh, impurity. Uh, this is waste. It's, this word is, describes rotting flesh. When John the Baptist, when Jesus, when, when Jesus, actually let me make this Jesus, when Jesus told the scribes and the Pharisees that you are like whitewashed tombs, all clean on the outside but filled with dead men's bones and rotting flesh, he used this word impurity here. It's used more often than other usages to describe sexual immorality, but it has a broader meaning as well. And then finally, deceit. This is the deceptive lure which you would use to catch a fish. It's a snare. And beloved, what Paul is saying here is they are not wolves in sheep's clothing. The gospel they preached was accurate and it was authentic. And as a result, look at the rest they, it is approved by God. So they are approved by God because their gospel message and their gospel life is accurate and authentic. Verse 4. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. This is the same gospel of God where God is the source and the subject. This is the same gospel that changed Saul of Tarsus, excuse me, Saul of Tarsus into Paul the Apostle. And he has an authenticity endorsed by God. So we speak, verse 4 continues, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God. Paul served men, but Paul did not live to serve men. Men and women, people, were not his ultimate source, object of whom he was serving. He was serving God. God, what God? This God. God, look at the rest of verse 4 who examines our heart. That's the same Greek word translated there as examined was the same word that was approved earlier in the verse, approved by God. That basically what Paul is saying here is we were tested, we were examined, and in the same way that you would test a metal to determine is this a pure metal, the same way a refiner would stir up and stir up the, and burn the fire, apply the fire, the heat of the furnace to have the dross and the bad stuff float to the top so that the refining would be pure. That's the same kind of dynamic. They were tested and they were so proved, then they were so proven that they were approved by God. Uh, the Greek translation of Proverbs 17.3 where we read the refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold but the Lord tests the hearts. The refining pot that's the same word that we see here. So what Paul is saying here is our message our motives is authentic and so we speak. You see the three missionaries Paul, Silas, and Timothy they were not mealy-mouthed they didn't use weasel words. They were not plagued by the forked tongue. 
This is what Paul says when he wrote to the immature church in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians 2.17, he says, We're not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity. But as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Or the even more troubled problem church in Galatia, Galatians 1.10, Paul says, Am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bond servant of Christ. Paul was a bold, fearless, and authentic man. Let me pause and go on the side here for a second. There's a sports radio broadcaster named Jim Rome, and I'm not promoting his show, but he had Aaron Ralston on his show one time. Aaron Ralston, you may be familiar with the story, was canyoneering up in Blue John Canyon in Utah, and he had his right arm trapped by a like 400-pound boulder in this narrow slot canyon. And after 127 hours, he took a pen knife, and after he realized that if he could snap the bone in his arm, he would be able to use this dull knife and saw through his arm. And he did that and cut his arm off and then hiked nine miles back, including a 60-foot rappel with one arm after he cut his arm off. All that to say, Jim Rome had Aaron Ralston, and, and by the way, Aaron Ralston, if you look at him, he looks like a geeky engineer. But Jim Rome, who was in the sports world, introduced Aaron Ralston as the toughest man on the planet. Now, I say that because when you think of the Apostle Paul, he was no shrinking violet. He was a man's man, probably not at first appearance. Very likely, very probably, he was kind of a sickly-looking, short, small man. But when we look at what this man's man endured, we can say he is a man's man. He probably read Mansfield's book of manly men. But 2 Corinthians 11, for example verses 23 through 27, this is what Paul describes as his authentic credentials of an apostle, a true apostle of God. <clears throat> Second Corinthians 23, in the middle of the verse, Paul writes, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the seas, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and explosion. So, beloved, Paul is a tough guy. He's a very intense man. But what we see here, circling back, we see a picture of toughness, and this is a picture of tenderness. Shepherds need to be tough, and shepherds need to be tender. It's a picture of selflessness. Paul understands that he needs all of this. This is a composite picture of the grace of God at work in his life. And beloved, the gospel of God isn't a soft gospel. It's not a milk toast, namby-pamby gospel. It's a radical gospel. And the church, any church, will not be the salt of the earth if it tries in vain to sugarcoat the gospel. They didn't, we won't. So, 
We have an audacity empowered by suffering. We have an authenticity that is endorsed by God. The third essential element of a model shepherd is an authority enveloped by humility. This is what we see in verses 5 and 6. And by the way, we come to the four, but the four, uh, the third four is in verses 5 and 6. The but comes in verse 7, which we'll have to wait to next week for. So what Paul does here in verses 5 and 6, he first continues with their authenticity. Look at the beginning of verse 5. He says, for we never came with flattering speech, again appealing to their witness, as you know. Never came with a literal, a word of flattery. This is smooth tongue talk with the goal of and the motive of selfish advantage. This is deception through slick eloquence. What Paul's saying is there was no trickery, there's no impurity, there's no flattery. Uh, the impurity back in verse 3 when he said there's no impurity, Paul says, look, I'm not, we're not in the ministry for women. Here he says, I'm not in the ministry for money, and I'm not in the ministry for glory. He says, I'm not in the ministry for money, look at the middle of verse 5, nor with a pretext for greed. So it wasn't with flattery, and it was not with literally a cloak of greed. A cloak of greed. You see, Paul understands that greed becomes the root of envy, jealousy, and covetousness. Greed is the voracious appetite for what God forbids. It's the insatiable desire to not just possess more than you have, but to possess possess more than you ought to have. And beloved, we understand in the idolatry of our prosperous society In our culture, greed is in the air we breathe. And that's why it's so important that a model shepherd, a shepherd does not have, it's not characterized by the love of money. In fact, is free from the love of money and also not found of sordid gain. 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1. And in his departing words of encouragement, for example, by way of illustration, in his departing words of encouragement to the Ephesian elders, In the third missionary journey in Acts chapter 20, Paul says, I've coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. Acts 20 verse 33. Back here in verse 5, he says, God is witness. So again, he's appealing the first witness. Paul, of course, saves the infinitely greatest to the last. He calls first you yourselves as witnesses. Here is one of the two example in these 12 verses where he cites God as witness. God is witness. In verse 10 next week, you are witnesses and so is God. How devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers. And it's fascinating when we look at these 12 verses, verses 1 through uh, 12, uh, verse 1 through 12, God is mentioned nine times by Paul. Christ is only mentioned once in verse 6. In fact, in 1 and 2 Thessalonians, Paul references God more often than he references Christ. That's rather unique in his writings. And what he is doing here is he's bringing out, highlighting the work of God in their lives, in the model shepherds, and in the life of the model sheep. And He continues on, he says, nor, verse 6, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others. Uh, Paul understands the true shepherd, any shepherd, if the, the, the one who is not a false shepherd seeks the glory of God, not the glory of self. 
Even though, he finishes verse 6, even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. So again, this is authority that is enveloped by humility. Now, Paul is an apostle with a capital A. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, when you group Silas and Timothy, they're apostles with a lowercase a. Paul was the specific apostle, the apostle to the singular capital A apostle to the Gentiles after the 12 capital A apostles of Christ. But Silas and Timothy are a lowercase apostle in the general sense of being sent out by the church on this second missionary journey. And you may remember that if you were here when we opened up in chapter 1, uncharacteristically, Paul didn't open up the letter with citing his apostleship. Uh, He did that to the Thessalonians, did it to uh, Philemon. And he does that because he has a mature, because it's a mature church and he has an amiable relationship. But he brings it here to remind them as part of calling them as witnesses to remind them that he demanded nothing from them. And we'll see next time they even, the terrific trio, even worked day and night so as not to be a burden to them, even though they had a right, even though they had an authority that they rightfully could have asked of something from them. And there's one fascinating element here as well when he says, even though we might have asserted, uh, the root word there literally means a heaviness, a weight, a burden. What he's talking about here is the weight of apostleship. At the broader level of the shepherds here, it's the weight of pastoral ministry. There is a great burden, a great weight in pastoral ministry. It's the same dynamic, for example, in Galatians 6 verse 2, where it's in the context of the ministry we have to one another in the body of Christ. Do you remember what Paul said, Galatians 6, 2? Bear one another's burdens. That's the same word that he's talking about here as might have asserted. What Paul is saying is, even though as lowercase apostles, we have the weight of ministry, we have the approval of God, we have the authenticity of our lives, even though we have this weight, we don't throw our weight around because they are loving shepherds. They have an authority, again, enveloped by humility, which, of course, is modeled perfectly by who? By Jesus Christ. And by God's grace and mercy must be modeled by the shepherds of God in God's church. Why was Paul's ministry so effective in Thessalonica? Because he had a high view of God. He had a high view of Scripture. And he loved the flock. He loved the church. He loved the church that he shepherded. He loved the people to whom he is writing. We didn't talk down to you. We didn't talk down to you. But we got down beside you. We came alongside you so that we might serve you. That is what he is appealing to. That's how he prays for them. He told them in chapter 1 that he thanks God continuously, unceasingly for them because of his love them. And we know that the fervent prayers of a righteous man accomplish much. Bloody Mary, when she was persecuting Christians, when she was persecuting specifically Christians in Scotland, when she spoke of the great and mighty saint John Knox, Bloody Mary said, quote, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe, end quote. 
Beloved, that's the power of the prayer of a godly man. And what we have here in Paul's philosophy of ministry is the power of a biblical ministry. The model shepherd is the tender shepherd who sees that all the needs of the flock are supplied, all their wounds are healed, and all their distresses are resolved as best to his ability that he can do. Now, next week, we'll have the great joy of seeing God bring out as illustrations a mother and a father. And when we think of a mother, there's no one who sacrifices more than a mother for her child. It's a calling that demands affectionate commitment, tears, fears, floods, and failures, comfort and caring through the night. There's no higher calling on earth than a mother. And Paul opens up part two of this model shepherd with appealing to motherhood. And the sacrificial role of a mother frames a pastor's approach to gospel ministry. It's a picture of provision and protection. So stay tuned and be here next week for that. And with that, beloved, please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the transforming work you did in Saul of Tarsus, how you transformed him into Paul the Apostle, a, a mighty man, but a humble man, a probably weak, short, maybe short, nearsighted. We don't know all the difficult elements of what was in Paul's life. He was mighty because he was mighty in you, not through strength that he derived in and of himself at all, but only his adequacy came only from you, Lord Jesus. May that continue to be so even at greater levels in the elders here at Santan Bible Church, the deacons, the Titus II women, the mothers and fathers, the Titus II women, the more mature believer, help all of us, Lord, to excel yet more in all the characteristics that we see here. May they model and be a pattern uh, for our life as we have the purpose of your glory, not our own. It's in your name, Lord Jesus, that we pray, that we sing, and then that we have the blessing to extend the right hand of fellowship to beloved new official members. Amen.